The Journey of the Magi. A father picked up the phone just before Christmas to his son, who was working in New York. And he said, Hugo, I'm afraid I've got uh, bad news for you. Your mother and I are separating, and this will be our last Christmas together. His son said, Dad, this is terrible news. I'm coming home straight away. Then he picked up the phone to his daughter in Australia and said, Jenny, I'm afraid I've got some rather sad news for you. After all these years, your mother and I are separating, and this will be our last Christmas together. His daughter said, Dad, that's awful. Jack and I will be on the first plane home. The father put down the phone, turned to his wife and said, Darling, okay, that's, that's Christmas sorted. Children are coming home. We're all going to be together again, and they're paying their own airfares. Now, that's one way to persuade people to make a journey. In the passage read to us earlier, God found another way to persuade the wise men to make their particular journey. So would you turn, just look at, pick up the Bibles in front of you, turn to that chapter in Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, on page 966, The Journey of the Magi. And this chapter in Matthew is probably one of the most uh, disturbing accounts of the Christmas story. Yes, we have this wonderful picture of the Magi arriving, um, as our inimitable Tim Mayfield used to tell us, smelling of curry and camels, um, and of them bowing down before the Christ child. But we also have the darker side of Christmas. Matthew tells us of a king who's devious and out of control. He tells us of intrigue and suspicion in the court and of unrest in the city. He tells us of strange dreams, warning of imminent danger, of threats and of lies. And if we'd read to the end of the chapter, of a young family fleeing for their lives, making a desperate escape at night, and most horrific of all, of course, a slaughtering of innocent children. What has happened to our beautiful nativity scene? Well, first of all, the arrival of the Magi probably wasn't at Christmas. It it probably wasn't at the actual birth of Jesus. It may have been anything up to two years later. And we're given a clue to this in verse 16, if you just look at it. Here we have the moment when Herod realizes he's been outwitted by the Magi. And in his fury, he gives orders, we're told, to kill all the boys in Bethlehem who were two years older, old and under, according to the time he learned from the Magi. Now, we fondly imagine the Magi arriving at the stable just as the shepherds were leaving, don't we? But it's clear that the journey from the east had taken not just days or weeks, but more likely a couple of years. Mind you, it's been said that if the wise men had been wise women, they would have asked directions earlier, arrived on time, helped deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, and brought a casserole. (laughs) But why would a group of wise men from a far-off land embark on such a journey in the first place? They most probably came from Persia, or from Babylon, as as it was called in ancient times. And you may remember that the Babylonians had been the ones to ransack Jerusalem nearly 600 years before, bringing uh, the cream of its inhabitants into captivity, many of them never to return again. And among those Israelites in Babylon at that time had been Daniel, uh, of Daniel and the lion's den fame. 
We're told that Daniel became chief of the Magi at that time. So his influence would have been, would have been quite significant. And Daniel was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And he gave some of the most extraordinary prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. He spoke, for instance, of one like a son of man coming in the clouds of heaven, one who would be given authority, glory, and sovereign power, one who all peoples, nations, and men of every language would worship. These magi from the east would more than likely have studied Daniel's words. And if they were seekers after truth, as we believe they were, they would have been waiting and hoping that one day, one day these words would come true. So they'd been prepared, if you like, for this moment in time. And also, God spoke to them in a language that they could understand. He spoke to them through a star. These men weren't kings, as we often led to believe. You know, we three kings from Orient aren't. They were astrologers. They read the stars. That was their job. And here was a sign in the night skies that they couldn't ignore. And that is what led them on this extraordinary journey. A journey in search of a king. The king of the Jews, verse 2. And this title, King of the Jews, you know, is a very specific one. And it's only used to describe two people in the Bible, King Herod and King Jesus. Herod was given this title by the Romans because they considered him the most effective ruler Israel had ever had. This title was really important to Herod. Um, it proved to him how respected he was by Rome. You know, it, it puffed up his already big ego. So you can imagine his horror when these strangers from the east arrived, announcing their mission to find the one called King of the Jews, and they're obviously not talking about him. I mean, no wonder he was disturbed, verse 3. It feels like a slight understatement, doesn't it? And all Jerusalem with him, we're told. You know, word on the street, keep your heads down. Herod is not happy. This was a barefaced challenge to his authority. And you've got to realize Herod had spent years scheming, double-crossing, flattering, warning, and murdering. He murdered his, his, his wife. He murdered three of his sons to win the throne as king of the Jews. And he wasn't going to give it up without a fight. This reading is not about three kings. It's actually about the two kings, King Herod and King Jesus. And the contrast between these two kings could not be greater. On the one hand, we have the self-appointed ruler, and on the other, we have God's appointed ruler. On the one, we have the king who came to be served, and on the other, we have the king who came not to be served, but to serve. We have the king who loved to be called great, Herod the Great, and we have the greatest king of all who came into the world unrecognized and vulnerable. We have the one who desperately guarded his earthly throne. And we have the one who willingly gave up his heavenly throne. We have the king who clung to his title, Herod, king of the Jews. And we have the one who bore that title as he was nailed to a cross. And we also have verse 20 the Herod, the king that died. 
and we have our Jesus who still lives. The contrasts run deep. So this story, this chapter, is about two kings, not three. And it's about three responses, not two. Because we often focus on the responses of Herod and the response of the Magi. But there's a third response that we often miss. The response of the scribes and teachers of the law, verse 2. So these three different responses... These different responses to the coming of the Messiah, let's take a look at them. Firstly, Herod's response. His response was basically fear. Fear of anything that he didn't understand or control and of anyone who threatened his his ambitions, his, his sort of life plan. Here was a man who wanted to do away with Jesus because he wanted to be king. He wanted to be king of his own life. He wanted to be king over his own little dominion. And, you know, people often react in a similar way today. They want to do away with the claims of Jesus. Those claims make them feel uncomfortable. They feel threatened by them. And so they dismiss them or they respond aggressively in debate against them. But Herod, you know, stands for the principle. He stands for the truth that if we want to rule our own lives, if that's what we want to do, sooner or later we will come into conflict with Jesus Christ because he is the only real king, the only real true ruler. And secondly, the teachers of the law and the chief priests, the ones that we easily miss in the middle of all that's going on. Herod calls them together, do you see, verse 2, and asks them where the Christ is to be born. And quick as a flash, they tell him that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And they quote uh, something from the prophet Micah. They know all the right answers. They know their scriptures back to front. They have an answer, you feel, to almost every religious question. But here's the strange thing. No matter how much they recognized God for his work in the, in the past and studied his promises for the future, they weren't, it seems, willing to let him work in the present. God in the past is, is safe, like a sort of dusty museum. God in the future is also safe because he's, it's a bit like an idle daydream. But God in the present is disturbing. And it disturbed these Jewish leaders. So rather than let these wise men come in and challenge their status quo, do you see what happened? They did nothing. They watched the Magi leave Israel on the last leg of their epic journey, and they didn't even bother to go with him. You know, only six miles to Bethlehem. And they stayed behind. They weren't even curious to go and see for themselves. You know, their apathy, their pride, their indignation, you know, that foreigners, pagans, should see some signs that they had failed to recognize. And the tragedy of it, this is what they'd been waiting for for centuries, the coming of the Messiah, and they miss it. They presumed they knew it all. They thought they knew what to expect. But God surprises us. God will always surprise us. And he still does today. 
Then thirdly, we have the response of the Magi, the Magi from the east, foreigners, as I've said, not part of the promised people of Israel, but here they were. They were allowed into this momentous event in history because they were in search of the truth. And they invested everything, it seems, in order to find the one born king of the Jews. This wasn't just a physical journey for them. This was a journey of faith. And these foreigners, these unbelievers, had three great qualities. Qualities that I think would be worth us making note of. First of all, they came. They came with open minds. Open to the supernatural. Open to God doing something out of the ordinary. They were open, first of all, to to God's prompting to set them off on this crazy journey. They were open to miraculous signs through stars appearing in the sky and dreams at night. Things that couldn't easily be explained. And they searched for the one. And God honored that search because it was genuine and open. And at the end of their journey, they met the king. And it's the same for us today. If we come with an open mind, genuinely searching, genuinely looking for the truth, God will always honor that search. So they came with open minds and they came with open hearts. Their hearts had been prepared. That's why, do you see verse 10? They were immediately overjoyed when they reached their destination. They knew they'd got there. And they instinctively knew that their only response was to bow down and worship. They were so ready to worship the king. There was no hesitation, no more questioning, just this open adoration. They'd found him. They'd found him at last, the object of all their longings. And it's the same for us today. You know, many people say that coming to faith in Jesus, meeting Jesus for the first time, is like coming home, finding the person that you've been looking for, the place where you belong. And I, I found that place when I was 17 years old, and I heard the good news, the gospel explained in a way that I could understand for the first time. And I knew where I needed to be. I was one of the first ones up to the front. And I I didn't know necessarily all that it meant, all that it would entail. But I knew that's where I, I needed to be. And yes, it was like coming home. And thirdly, they came with open hands. There's this most lovely phrase in verse 11. It tells us, after they bowed down and worshipped him, they opened their treasures They held nothing back. They wanted to honor him with what they had, all that they had. And you know, again, it's the same for us today. When we encounter the one who gave everything for us, we want to give him everything back. Our lives, our gifts, our possessions, our ambitions, we want to give it back to him. That's a sign, you know, that we've truly met the king. And these magi let the coming of the Messiah transform their thinking, disturb their diaries, and demand their worship. They left everything behind in, order, in, in, in response to, to Jesus. And you know, wise men and women do the same today. 
Let's just, uh, let's stand for a moment, shall we? And let's just take, let's just take a moment. This Christmas time, let's just take a moment to make our own personal response to Jesus, to the coming of Jesus. Let's not miss this moment. Because this is all about our own personal response. Where are we? Where are we with him? And in a crowd like this, we all have, we will be in different places in our journey. Different experiences. For some of us, we may feel that we're only just at the beginning of it. For some of us, we may feel we've hardly started. We're just looking. We're just beginning to look. For others of us here, we've been, we've been on this journey for a long time. And the question is, are we still seeking? Are we still in that right place of asking questions, looking for him at every opportunity? Because this is about two kings, not three. It's about the battle over, of good over evil. And it's three responses, not two. What is our response to him right now? Where are we at with him? Who do we identify with? Do we identify with Herod? His defensiveness. That sense of wanting to keep control. That slight feeling of threat of just what, what is going to be asked of me? Where am I going with this? Where might God take me? Or is our response a bit like the, 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 the scribes and teachers of the law? We maybe have become a little apathetic. Maybe we're a little way along in our journey and we realize that actually we've, we've just become slightly, slightly blasé about just what what this really means, who Christ really is, where we are on our journey with him. We may even, even have become a little proud, thinking that, yeah, I know this. I know this stuff. I've attended many Christmases before. And God is saying, lay those things down. Lay them down. Lay down the pride, the apathy. Lay it down. And just come like the Magi, just with an open heart and an open mind, saying, God, what do you want me to do? I'm here. And asking that question with, with them, that right question, where is he? Where is he who's born king of the Jews? So I, I, right now, this Christmas, may bow down and worship him. For each of us, let's just, maybe as a sign, let's just put out our hands. And wherever we are on our journey with him, whatever our response, however tentative we may be in our response, however eager, and I believe there's a lot of people here who are eager to respond, eager to ask of God, Lord, I want to follow you. Take me. Where do you want me to go?
Make that our prayer this Christmas. And for any of us here who are feeling hesitant, who are feeling that somehow we've lost that original, original sense of I'm on a journey. I'm on a journey with you, Lord. You somehow lost your way. And maybe for some of us here, there's a, there's a need of just saying, Lord, I want to come home. And maybe it's for the first time. Maybe it's because we've just moved away from him. And we say, Lord, I want to come back. Come back to that place. Come back like the Magi and just worship you for who you are. So, Lord, we invite you. We invite you by your spirit to just come. Come, Jesus. And this Christmas we ask that you would show us again the extraordinary thing of God made man. The extraordinary thing of all that you gave up for us. The extraordinary thing of allowing us to see God in the flesh. And Lord, we pray that you would, you would take from us any wrong pride or apathy or defensiveness or, th- or sense of threat. And we pray instead that you would give us, again, open hearts to you. An open mind to seek you. And open hands to give you back what is rightfully yours. And I believe there may be one or two here who are, uh, who are saying something to God this, this evening uh, for the first time. Asking him for the first time, Lord, I want to come home to you. And if that's you, I would encourage you, if you've come with someone to tell them, or as you go out, we'll be giving some packs just uh, with uh, an invitation with a little booklet about Christmas. Uh, we'd encourage you to take one of those. But if you know that this is your moment of coming home, don't miss it. <laughs>